section we read, chapter 4, verses 21 through 5-1. But um, as I was thinking through how to, how to start today, God just grabbed hold of my heart with this question. Do you find it difficult to focus on Galatians when the world around us is in such pain? I am struggling with uh, understanding the pain of others this morning. Uh, we mentioned this uh, recently, the fact that we're coming up on one-year anniversary. But if I, if I have the dates right, and I may be a day off, but today is the 354th day of the war in Ukraine. Carol has done an excellent job of reminding us about what's going on over there. She has family members who are over there. Uh, she has been over there and I think planning other trips over there. But if you watch the news, and although it may not be on, on the front page or the, or the, the head story, uh, the lead story every night on the news, there has been 354 days of people suffering. 354 days where they have been displaced. 354 days where they may be mourning a loved one. But there's 354 days in this past year that people to include our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine, have been suffering and, and experiencing some very, very difficult times. We know there's been these earthquakes over the last uh, week or so, and the death toll from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is, is approaching 30,000 people. We just talked a few weeks ago about the sanctity of life. We talked about all the image bearers that we walk around day in and day out and, and how we're supposed to look at each and every one of them as, as holy in the sense that they bear the image of God, but they are not all redeemed. 30,000 people have died in the last few days. And one article I read said, the fear is that that number will double. How are we supposed to talk about Galatians when there is so much going on in our world? And we're so far removed from it over here. Now, maybe, maybe you have family members that have been impacted, friends been impacted. I don't know. I haven't heard any stories that are close at hand for the earthquakes. But in our world today, it's a very small world. And in our community, being so close to Boston and the international trade and the international connections and relationships that exist, folks, we're going we're gonna to hear about people that know people who know people who have died. We have people in our own church family, people we know and love, maybe, maybe outside our church family, but in our families nonetheless, our, our close friends, neighbors, they're dealing with grief. They're dealing with illness. They're dealing with all kinds of uncertainties of life. And I'm just finding myself wondering, what don't I know about your lives here this morning? What are the uncertainties that are going on in the hearts and minds of God's people right here, right now? Are you uncertain about your marriage? Are you uncertain about your Finances, uncertain about your faith. 
what are you uncertain about this morning? Because I really want you to know, it's not just that we care. God cares. And he is willing to walk with you through these griefs, these illnesses, and these uncertainties, just as he is willing to walk through all those affected by what has transpired across the ocean. How has your world been shaken? Now, your world may have been shaken in the past, and it may not be a current thing. It may not have the intensity of the emotions that it once had when you lost a loved one, when you experienced whatever it might have been experienced. I've lost, in, in the sense that in the vernacular term, both my parents have stepped into eternity. eternity. I've been let go from two jobs uh, prior to entering ministry. Um, I've experienced a turmoil that, that takes place when brothers go a different direction than, than the parents want them to go. I've experienced the pain of looking at my parents' eyes when I tell them that my desire to follow the Lord means that I have to disappoint them. My world's been shaken, but God is faithful. And however it may have been shaken in the past, I think you have, you have probably already seen or experienced God proving to you his faithfulness. And we are called to live faithfully in return. But maybe you're in a shaken state right now. I, I hope these words that we're going to look at here in just a moment will bring you hope, will bring you encouragement as we consider the testimony of Scripture that says that our God is a God who is present. He's present with us. But although we know this to be true, and this is true, Sometimes it's difficult to sense his presence when we see the inequities of life. Much of what we're going to talk about today is our eyes being on the eyes of others. Or recognizing the tension that exists in the life of a believer as he looks at beyond himself and beyond his church family and takes his eyes, his or her eyes, off of God and somehow gets distracted by the things of the world. Because sometimes God doesn't feel so present when we see the inequities of life that exist. And so I want to bring you into the presence of Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph. And I think I have a new appreciation for this man that I know nothing about. Because he is giving us a glimpse into his own heart and what was going on in his own life. He says, truly God is good to Israel. To such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. Asaph is a, is a man who is leading others in worship. That's the way I picture him as he's a psalm writer and as he's, as he's describing his role and his function, he's also giving us a glimpse of his heart. He says, listen, God is good. Right? God is good all the time. 
Come on, folks. Say it with gusto. Say it with meaning. God is good all the time, and how do we know that saying? It's not Baptist, is it? Maybe it is. I don't know. I heard that all the time in the military. And you know what? It was said with such joy, with such expectation. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. You wanted, if it was in the South, it would be yee-haw, right? It would be amen. It would be all. This is the God, and this is Asaph saying, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, those who are desiring to be in relationship with him. And, 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 and he says, but as for me, I'm letting you know, I nearly stumbled. Because my eyes came off of God, and I was envious of the boastful. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and I thought to myself, this is just not right. This is not fair. There's no pangs in their death. There's no, their strength is firm. They even die with dignity. They die in ease. They don't, they're not experiencing the suffering that I see. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. Do you get the picture of what Asaph is trying to process? He has stepped into worship, and he's, worship, he's leading others in worship, but he's struggling to understand the inequities of life. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. It is, it is the idea of these people are so caught up in their life and their ease and their abundance and all, that they don't have time for God. And for someone who's struggling to eke out a living, for someone who's struggling with seeing the inequities of life, someone that's struggling to pay the bills and, and struggling to do in so many different ways, it just doesn't seem right that those who scoff at God should experience His supposed blessings. Testimony of Scripture says that our God is a present God. But sometimes it's difficult to sense His presence when the faithful are brought low. He goes a step deeper in his psalm. He says, therefore His people return here. They return to this place of worship. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. Notice what they're thinking and saying. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? What kind of a question is that for the faithful? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. The people of God have been brought low. They are, they are questioning that how this all comes together. How does this all work out? Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. Is that your thought this morning? I come here week after week expecting a blessing from God, and all I leave here with 
is wondering, why is life so hard? Why are those who are supposedly of the world excelling beyond what I can excel? They're experiencing beyond what I want to experience. They have the things that I want, but I can't seem to have. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. Is there anything to this Christianity? I've washed my hands in innocence. I'm not guilty of all the stuff that all these people are. For all the day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. This is the people of God. Asaph is saying, I have my questions. They have been brought low. But the testimony of the Scripture says that our God is a present God. But sometimes it's difficult to sense His presence when our godly leaders have their own doubts. Asaph says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. I'm not actually sure if he's saying that if I had put on the mask and, and pretended everything was good, that he would have been unfaithful, or if he's saying if I had spoken like they had spoken, that he would be unfaithful. But I honestly believe they're both true. People put on the mask and say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And when they leave this place, they're in utter despair and wondering, is there a God in heaven? But I've got the mask. When I thought how to understand this, Asaph says, it was too painful for me. It's too painful. Can't go there. Can't deal with it. I'm going to go distract myself with the things of the world. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to get involved in my job so uh, deeply that I can't really be worried about the fact that 30,000 people have died in the last few days. Some are still buried under the rubble. They're still pulling people out of the rubble who are alive. But the days are, are waning where they will not find anyone else alive. I think Asaph is just saying it's too painful for him to enter into all this stuff. How has your world been shaken? The testimony of Scripture says that our God is a present God. And I think Asaph wants us to understand the testimony of Scripture is true. He goes on to say, I, I was confused. I didn't quite get it. It's too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I stepped into the, into the place of worship. And I engaged in the word of God and understand the person of God and the plan of God. I understood their end. Surely you set them in, a slippery, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. 
Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Are you needing encouragement today? I'm telling you, make Asaph your new friend. Come to Psalm 73 and, and understand that his world is much like our world. And his conclusions ought to be the conclusions that we come to. God has promised us his presence and he will never not keep his promise, or he will always keep his promise. This, is, this, is, this was a moment, a teachable moment for Asaph, and maybe a teachable moment for us, because as we ask the question, how has your world been shaken? The reality is that we have our doubts, and we are confused at times. And as we transition into our study of Galatians, we can say the world of the Galatian Christians had been shaken by uh, the false teachings that had come into their world. Now listen, don't, let not this passionate view of Asaph standing on, and coming to a knowledge of God and coming to genuine worship somehow fade into the distance as we transition into the, into the situation of the Galatians. Let's not be ignorant and let's not fail to see that false teaching brings harm and pain into a church. The Galatians were hurting people. Paul was hurting for them. And we, we saw that last week. He said, listen, I'm perplexed. I don't get this. Listen, and he says, I want to be with you, but I can't. I wish to speak with you differently, but I can't. He loves the Galatians, and the world of the Galatians Christians had been shaken by this false teaching. They were in perilous times. He starts off and says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now. And to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. That's where we finished off last week. Paul is sharing his heart with his Galatian brothers and sisters. Paul, like Asaph, seeks to explain things as they really are. Remember Asaph as he, as he was, got his eyes off of God and onto the things of the world and the prosperity of the wicked and all the sufferings of the, of the, of the godly and all that. And then he stepped into God's presence and then he understood reality. And Paul, I think, is doing the same thing for the Galatians. He's saying, folks, let's step into reality. Let's understand who God is, and let's understand how things really are. So first, Paul confronts those who are guilty of having a wrong desire. We, we spoke about uh, the, the, um, Psalm 73, talked about the desires. The desires, when Asaph was in the, uh, the presence of God, was to serve God and to love God. But Paul is confronting these Galatian believers who are guilty of having a wrong desire. Well, what is their desire? He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? They had a wrong desire. Paul's been telling them over and over again, you can't go back to the law. Salvation comes through a promise. He says, do you hear the law? That word is, is really helpful for us to understand the differences between their day and ours. We can read the word of God in any number of different ways. 
But they were an audible society for the most part. Most people had to hear the Word of God speaking. He's saying, listen, tell me, you believers, do you, have you heard the law? Do you understand the law? Have you come to comprehend what it is that the law is all about? Then he, he clarifies their misunderstandings with the use of allegory. Now, this will mess with the 21st century mind, but it didn't mess with their mind. This was an acceptable form of communication. They would have understood the nuances of, of what Paul was saying. As we enter into the text, there's some confusing aspects to it. I hope to lessen the amount of confusion that might be present. But I want us to, as we go through here, we're going to understand that this is allegory. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. The Greek word for symbolic here is, has the root of allegory. Uh, so that's where we get the word allegory from. In, in others, uh, other translations, it'll use the word allegory. It'll use other words. But it's, it's figurative in some sense. So as Paul is leading the Galatians to another part of his argument to saying, stay true, stay the course. He says, let me share a story with you. Uh, we're fond of stories. I love stories. I tell stories. When I'm, when I'm counseling in my office, there's, there are times where I'll, I'll share a life experience in a way of helping someone identify that I, I kind of sense where they're coming from and their pain. Uh, I'll bring them to a passage of Scripture and say, hey, look, there are people in Scripture that, are, that understand your pain, and God understands your pain. Uh, other times where I can't think of a life experience of my own or a text of Scripture, I'll just make up a story. I will. I'll say, listen, have you ever considered, hey, let's just pretend, right? And you share a story. You do this with your children. Now, once upon a time, they live happily ever after. And everything in between is a bunch of confusion, and the kids, you know, they'll say, well, what's the story again? I don't remember how I told it the first time. Paul's not in that situation. Paul knows what the story is all about. He's saying, listen, I'm going to take something that's very familiar to you, and I'm going to allegorize it so that you understand what it is that's going on. When we come to allegory, we have to understand there are always facts upon which the allegory is based. And so let's look at some of the facts that Paul points out here. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. We know the names of those sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Fact. Fact number two. One was born of a bondwoman. We know, and she's named here, uh, well, in the next, uh, the next uh, slide, well, her name is Hagar. Right? So uh, we know Ishmael was born of, of Hagar. One was born by a bondwoman, fact. The other was a free woman from Sarah. That was Isaac, another fact. But he was, the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. This is also fact because we have it recorded in Scripture that Ishmael came on the scene not through the promise of God, not through the plan of God, but through the, the workings of, of Abraham and Sarah coming together, trying to figure these things out. If there's ever a time where someone leaned on their own understanding, it was here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. God was directing their path, but not in their timing, not to their satisfaction. And they came up with this plan, and Ishmael was a result, and it was, it, it, yes, he was born of natural means. He, he, 
came through the birth canal. He was birthed. So was Isaac. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that he was born according to the flesh. In other words, it was the plan of, uh, it was man's plan. But the free woman, through promise, he's already been saying this. We've already learned this. The promise precedes the law. The promise of God is that through the seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the whole world will be blessed, and the seed of Abraham is Jesus. We've already talked about that. And we said all those who come to faith in him are children of God. But he's saying, listen, there are those for, for the purposes. we need. Let me establish the facts. The facts are all here. Two sons. One commentary I read, the big question is not who's your daddy, it's who's your mommy. I thought that was creative and a little slangish, but I liked it, right? It's the idea, Paul's saying to the Galatian believers, you want to go back to the law, but hey, can, can we just pause for a moment? You say you're a son of Abraham. Jesus dealt with this. I could raise up, God could raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks. Don't, don't claim that you're a son of Abraham because, to be honest with you, Ishmael and all his descendants are descendants of Abraham. You can't go there. The question he's, bringing, he's, he's, he's saying here is, let's talk about mom for a minute. And he said these things, so these facts, he says, now they're going to be allegorized. They're going to be uh, talked about um, figuratively. His use of allegory makes one major point. So one of the issues I had with all the reading I did is people wanted to take all the different facets. Listen, folks, we don't have time for that. Go read the commentaries. I'm going to say his use of allegory makes one major point, and this is the point that I want us all to understand. Children of promise are the children of God. That's it. You're not a child of God unless you're a child of the promise. And, and we've... He said it before. I've said it before. But children of the promise are children of God, and these children are free. We talked about this last week, this freedom. I desire for you to live freely. I am so thankful that I am not bound by some of the things that I'm bound, that I was bound with in the past. I've matured to a point of understanding. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm free in Christ. Now, in the context of the Galatians, he's talking about the law, the Jewish law, and all the things that pertain to it. And if you're, he's going to say a little bit later, if, if you're going to bind yourself to one part of it, you really have to bind yourself to the whole thing. But children of God are free. Children of promise are free. You are not bound by the things that you were bound with prior to coming to your faith in Christ. But that does not mean we get to live free from God. We are free from our sinful nature. We're free from the, the, the bondage of sin and death. We are free to glorify God with our words, our thoughts, our actions. We are free. We step into a place of worship and we see all the inequities of life and we, we are brought low by the things of life and all the struggles and suffering we experience. But we are reminded when we come in the presence of God, we are free. And that freedom is the way we are called to live. And so we are free to not follow the ways of this world. We are free to not despise the people the world despises. Are you willing to talk to a homeless person? 
Are you willing to put your arm around uh, someone who's, who's struggling and you, you've never met them before, but you see them weep? Are you willing to get involved in people's lives? Because Jesus touched the leper. You can touch somebody. And you're free to do it. We are free to buy the things that will honor God, to buy the things that will serve the, the, the purposes of God. We are free to make offerings to God. The world is not free to do those things. They are in bondage. We are free. Paul says, for these are the two covenants, and he points to the two covenants. The old covenant is the covenant of death. I'm just going to summarize the whole thing for you, then we're going to walk through. The old covenant is the covenant of death. It's the covenant that the law speaks to. It is the idea that, that uh, you, you have either the, the, the old, you're either going to live by the old covenant of death or the new covenant of life. The new covenant, the one that was promised in Jeremiah, the one that was filled in Christ, the one that was explained by the apostles and, and the other writers of Scripture. We are citizens of this new kingdom which lives under a new covenant. But he says, notice this, there are two covenants. The one is Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. He says, figuratively speaking, and for our purposes of the discussion, Hagar, who is, a, who is the mother of Ishmael, we're going to say that she actually represents Mount Sinai, where the law of God was given to the Jews. This would have been offensive to a Jewish person. How dare you relate that bond woman, Hagar, mother of Ishmael, to our revered mountain where God gave us the law. There's the point, Paul says. The law was given on Mount Sinai, and it is a law that served as your prison guard. You were never going to get set free by the law. So like Hagar was a bond woman, she was a slave, the law that was going to Mount Sinai, it keeps those who obey it slaves. They remain in bondage. It corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. Paul is saying, figuratively speaking, listen, I'm talking to you in Galatia, but you know everyone looks to Jerusalem for the, for the birthplace of the church, but let's talk about where the law is most sought after and lived out. It's in Jerusalem where the, the sacrifices are still taking place and people are still observing days and months and, and doing all those things that they were due to be, to be good Israelites. He's saying that's part of the first covenant. We call it the old covenant. And it's a covenant which Jerusalem, which is now, it says that that present Jerusalem, it represents the bondage that exists of the children who are tied to the Old Covenant. And then, very refreshingly, he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. So we see two moms, two sons, two covenants. In a sense, we can see two mountains. You have Mount Sinai, and you have Mount, you have, uh, Mount Zion, which is, which is where Jerusalem is, is, is located. You, you could go there, but the text doesn't. It just says Mount Zion. But it does give us Jerusalem, which is on Mount Zion. We have Jerusalem of the earth and the Jerusalem of heaven. And so as we consider this reality, he's saying the Jerusalem that's above 
This Jerusalem that's referenced uh, elsewhere in Scripture by Paul, but also John in Revelation, this, this Jerusalem above, citizens of that Jerusalem are free. That's what he says, which, oh, which is the mother of us all. He's saying, listen, I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to those who understand the gospel. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ. I taught it to you. I brought it to you. You came to faith. You loved me. What, now that I'm telling you the truth, am I your enemy that he said last week? He says, listen, let me tell you a story. It's figurative, but it's based on fact. This Jerusalem that is above, that is the Jerusalem that you're a citizen of. Don't go back to the old covenant. You're a citizen of the new covenant. You're a citizen of the new Jerusalem. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. That seems strange, does it not? This seems strange. Why would a woman who is barren rejoice? Under what circumstances is that possible? In that society and, and much in our society still to this day, there's still this, this, this reality that infertility is not something that women usually look forward to. And certainly to say rejoice, O barren, seems a bit unkind, but these words are written from Isaiah 54, verse 1. They're figurative in their own right. And they're, they're looking upon the city of Jerusalem and say, although you're going through one of the most horrific times of your existence, there is coming a time where the, although you're barren now, you will have more children than those that have a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. He's saying, listen, there is, like, like, the Psalm, like, the, uh, like Isaiah said in Isaiah 54, 1, rejoice, O barren. He's saying, you are children of Sarah, the free woman. And this is your status before God. You can't go back. Rejoice. Because the woman who was barren became the mother of many nations. God's plan is amazing. It all ties together. He says, Paul says to the Galatians, we, we brethren are Isaac. We're the child of the free woman. We are the children of promise. Children of promise are children of God, and, and, and yes, they're free, but they do suffer. And this helps us even tie into some of what we've already talked about, the suffering that exists in this world. He says, but as he who was born according to the flesh, being Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, which is Isaac, even so it is now, Paul says. Now, there, there is, there's one little verse in Genesis that talks about Ishmael scoffing, making fun of, of Isaac. There's no story of, of uh, Jacob and Esau fighting one another or doing anything or being any of that stuff. No, the Isaac's story with Ishmael is basically Ishmael was probably about 13, 14 years old when, when uh, Isaac came on the scene. Uh, a few years later, Isaac's being weaned from his mother. In that culture, there was a celebration. And, and uh, probably about the age of, of three, uh, Ishmael scoffs, makes fun of, kind of picks on his little brother, half-brother. And Paul's saying, in some sense, there's, that's persecution. But even in a grander sense, we know that the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac 
have been at war with one another and hate one another, and that persecution still existed throughout history, even to this day, he says. That's fact. But let's talk about allegory for a minute. He's saying, listen, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him according to the spirit. Those of Ishmael's house, those of Hagar's house, figuratively speaking, they persecute those who are the children of promise. And it's true. And it's happening. And you might feel the pressure to submit because of the suffering. Because we have to be genuine. We have to be real and understand children of God suffer. Do we think that out of the 30,000 people there are no Christians in there? Do we think that no Christians have died in Ukraine? Christians die. Christians suffer. But we're still children of the promise. And we will suffer. And it's true. It's true of them today. It's true of them then. It's true for us today. And I don't know what level of suffering, what level of persecution you might experience. But welcome it when it comes, when it's due to you living out your faith in front of a world that doesn't get you. Children of promise are the children of God. Children of God are the only heirs. This is that forward thinking, that, that eternal perspective that, I, that I, I reference on a regular basis. Look above the issues of your life and the turmoils of your life and the suffering you're going through, and you look beyond it, and you really can look beyond it because the, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, and you can sit there and say, in the power of God, based upon his word, I, ha- I have an inheritance reserved for me in heaven, First Peter says. And Paul is saying, listen, nevertheless, what does Scripture say? Let's go to Scripture, Paul says. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What is Paul's point for bringing this in? Well, again, we're still in allegory, but he's also making application. He's saying, let's look at the facts. Scripture actually says this. Off the lips of Sarah to her husband Abraham, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Get rid of them. Now that I have a son of my own, they cannot coexist. He is, the, the Ishmael is picking on Isaac. And it's not going to stop. It's not going to get better because up to this point, Ishmael was an heir until Isaac came. And Isaac is the son of promise. No more heir. He was blessed by God with many nations and lands and all those things, but it wasn't the promise that Isaac was going to receive. So Sarah says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Paul says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. What's he talking about? Get rid of the false teachers in your midst. They are sowing discord. They are harming brothers and sisters in Christ. We as children of God, children of the promise, we are heirs. He's already said it multiple times, but they are not. And I will say, this is one of those things, that I, just for the sake of, of sharing it, because I don't share, share it very often, this is the importance of regenerate church membership. What is regenerate church membership? Regenerate means to come back to life. It's the idea to come to life, to be born again. It's the idea that we should not have members of the church in our midst who are not professing believers of Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world, died for their sins, right? 
and is coming again, right? He is the Savior. That's who should characterize, that's what should characterize all our members. It doesn't mean we don't allow other people into our church. No, we want more people to come to faith in Christ. And when you come to faith in Christ, please join our, our fellowship of believers. Increase our quorum, okay? Nevertheless, you had to be here last week to get that one. All right, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the, the, the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So his use of the allegory, of, of allegory makes one major point. Children of promise are the children of God. And I pray that you're a children of promise today. I pray that you know that you're a, children of, a child of God today. He says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And there's that word again. We are free. Paul challenges the children of God to remain faithful to the true gospel. We're going to end on this verse, and we're going to pick up this verse the next time in two weeks when we're back into Galatians. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. But it really makes sense with everything Paul has said. Here's my allegorical challenge to you. Here's the story I'm going to tell. He says, here's the application. Stand fast. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's going to flesh that out some more. But he's saying, listen, in light of everything I said, stand fast. The testimony of Scripture says that our God is a present God. And that testimony is true. That means no matter what issues or life events we face, whether you're facing today or tomorrow or three years from now, as Christians, we can take comfort in the way things really are. We have been given a glimpse of God and His power and His glory. Every time we step into Scripture and we see God's hand at work, every time we sit back and evaluate our life and the life of those around us who are believers in Christ, we can say, I saw the hand of God. That is reality. When somehow we have the conviction to step above the, the pressures of the world around us and to act out our freedom and to glorify God with the way we treat others, the way we love on those who are unlovable, the way we, that we make decisions that make no sense to those people around us. People think we're crazy for some of the things we do, but we do them because we believe it glorifies God and God is honored in that. And we can say because He is the God who is always with us, no matter what life throws at us, we understand the way things really are. Our God is ever-present with those whom He calls His children. If you came in here this morning and you had in any sense a desire to not be here, you came kicking and screaming because this just doesn't make sense to you. Why waste time? Go to Psalm 73. You're not alone. The leader of worship, Asaph, was struggling. The people were struggling. But it all changed when they saw God for who He is. And our God is an ever-present God. And He will always be with those who He calls His children. He calls people to Himself. Have you been called by God do you have that nagging sensation that God just wants something different from you in your life? Do you think somehow you have to do it on your own? Because the good news of the gospel is you can't. He does it 
for you. If you will come to faith in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. We invite you to come to faith. But for every believer in the room, I invite you to live out your faith to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. Actually, the many texts of Scriptures that we've looked at today. We thank you for the revealing heart of a worship leader. Not putting on the mask, but being genuine in his desire to lead the people to understand you for who you truly are. So we thank you for the weakness of Asaph. We thank you for humbling him and for allowing him to see the truth of who you are. Lord, we live in a world that is just horrific at different times and different places. The unborn are murdered. What, what we would deem innocent are, are enslaved. Those who are sleeping step into eternity as a result of an earthquake. And here we sit. Father, I pray that you do in our hearts what only you can do. You call us to serve our fellow image bearers in such a way that they know that it is your power working in and through us. And we pray that as that takes place, that you would call people to yourself, that they would repent of their sins, they would come to faith, they would join a church family, they'd be actively involved, and they'd be anticipating your coming as we do this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.